Welcome to Center Stage with international opera star Pamela Kuhn. And now, here is your host, Pamela Kuhn. And the curtain is up on Center Stage, the show about the arts and the artists behind their work. A wonderful string instrument is essential to many aspiring amateurs and professional musicians. But how does a person find the right instrument? Who does the professional string player consult when ready to trade up or look for the extraordinary instrument that will support their performing career? In a single word, I can answer this. The answer is Tarissio. Tarissio is the leading international auction house for fine and rare stringed instruments and bows. Launched in 1999, Tarissio revolutionized the instrument market by combining first-class expertise, efficiency of internet bidding, and a firm commitment to ethics and professionalism. With offices in New York City and London, Tarissio conducts six auctions per year, as well as private sales of high-value items, selling more than 3,000 fine instruments and bows to a truly global market. I recently visited the Tarissio office and extensive instrument vaults when a dear friend and former guest on my show, Brittany Bolding from the Seattle Symphony, was trying out new instruments. I was fascinated at the expertise that director and sales director Carlos Tom exhibited in guiding her in the violin search. So I decided to sit down with Carlos Tom and discuss the evolution of this company and the responsibility that they take for rare and sometimes priceless instruments. When we met, there were two violins and bows laid out on the surface of his desk. I was desperate, trying not to disturb the delicate instruments while conducting the interview. But I could see that living with these violins was essential to him. A violinist himself with a devout love of music, he cast off a performing career and found his calling at Cherizio. This learned musician and businessman from Spain keeps his focus on an impeccable conscience in dealing with and preserving the life of priceless stringed instruments. Tricio was created, an instrument had been sold online uh, because people have the idea that they have to try, they have to take it on trial. It's a long process. It's falling in love with someone. Um, so the idea of selling it um, through a screen with a click of a button was nothing inconceivable. Mm-hmm. Um, so Teresa, that's what started being different. The platform we only sold instruments online, uh, which changed the game a lot because all of a sudden there was massive education. People all over the world were looking at instruments. They had access to instruments. Um, we were reaching every corner of the world. And people also were anonymous. You didn't have to be in a room uh, to bid uh, for an instrument and to be seen. This every person that was bidding was behind the screen, anonymous, they have comfort level. So we provided all the information that they needed, they provided fair prices and an, an online platform. So that really changed the game. And I have to say that it was the, the challenge was to educate them to people to make people feel comfortable with this idea. So at the beginning it was a, just a journey. Um, but with with the, with the quality of the product that we were putting out, People believed in it, and it turned Tricio into the biggest auction house in the world now for musical instruments. Yeah. I mean, we have, uh, I think it's very, uh, we were doing the numbers, I think it's almost 60% of market share of the fine instrument, the auction the fine instrument, and, and the rest is a combination of six, seven auction, other, other auction houses. So it's a pretty large market share that we have. I would think um, so. We have about nine auctions per year. Um, and I think the, 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 other, the, the other unique element to trees is that everybody, that, like anybody that you saw today, we all love music. 
Mm-hmm. And it's a thing, I mean, we of course take it for granted that uh, part of us, we have to know about instruments, we have to love instruments, but we are also the service of music, a musician to an artist. Uh, everybody here plays an instrument. Um, we're all amateurs, there's no professional, but we all love playing music as well. And I think that's also why we are able to relate to our clients, whether they're musicians or not. I think they feel um, that genuine love for for the art. For. That's fantastic. Yeah. You can feel the enthusiasm here. Yeah, it's, it's, it is. And I think that's why we need it to be different for most people as well. And how many auction houses are there in the world that deal predominantly in stringed instruments? So there, that's a good question. So the, the two major auction houses that had, of course, that when you think of auction house, you think of Christie's, you think of Sotheby's. Right. Right. Uh, historically, those are the, you can add Fibonacci, Skinner, but those are the, always Sotheby's and Christie's. Those had always had musical departments. And until... 2000, they were responsible for selling pretty much 90% of the big violins, of so mm-hmm. Stradivariuses, Warner's Del Jesus, all the adoption. You would go to Sotheby's and Christie's. Interestingly enough, when Tricio was created, mm-hmm. um, those, those um, big instruments started decreasing in the offerings through Sotheby's and Christie's, and a few years ago, they have stopped doing auctions. Sotheby's and Christie's. They do perhaps one sale that is a private state, but the the musical instrument department, as what they were doing uh, before offering many instruments, they have stopped. Um, I'm sure there's a a lot of reasons for it, and I'm sure we have our own speculations as well. Of course. But (laughs) but the fact is, those have stopped. So what has happened, there's uh, another, perhaps competitors, we have another three or four that are specialized in musical instruments. Musical instruments is a niche. It's not for, it's, and that's part of the beauty as well, and part of the challenge. It has both angles. Right. Um, but it's a niche, the market. So there are about three, uh, three to four other auction houses specialized only in musical instruments. Wow. In America, we're the only one specialized in, uh, in, in fine instruments. And we are the only auction house that has offices here and in London as well. And in London. Yeah. So it's really 50-50 between London and New York? For yeah, you? it was, It was. yes, it was the main, The if you can call it the headquarters, will be always uh, in America because it was actually where, where Trisha was created with an American company. Mm-hmm. And then um, years after we started, we opened the, the London office, which now is a, a huge office uh, in terms of the volume and the influence that we have. Because, I mean, it's, Europe is small, it's connected, it's easier to go one place to the next one. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a huge tradition, of course, musical tradition in, in Europe. So it's, the London office is very active, but I think the, the, the genesis of Teresa will always be uh, the U.S., New York here. Fantastic. And speaking of Europe, you are originally from Spain, from Spain. but you were educated at the Royal Conservatory of yep. Music in London? I spent some time in London. I studied in, in, in Spain, in Madrid, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, I mean, I was as a, a violinist when I was a kid. I, I played violin. I and perhaps actually, I always find um, the violin was the the reason that I got to love music. And music is like, to me the, the sort of the priority and the hierarchy is music first, violin second, uh, in terms of my love for music. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but thanks to the violin, I also got to love instruments, and they gave me access to something that I got to see how unique, how what a works of art they are. Mm -hmm. In Spain, I didn't have access to them uh, because in Spain um, we don't. Uh, unfortunately, in, in the 18th century, Spain was um, almost an, had an incredible collection of musical, musical instruments because of the monarchy, because of the church, because of um, there was a lot of wealth. But when Napoleon came, uh, he stole many of them. Yes. Um, yes, yes. And so the, from that incredible wealth of, of, of instruments, we were left pretty much almost with nothing. Uh, which, so growing up, I didn't have access to see great instruments. Uh, but when I moved to America particularly, um, all of a sudden it was just um, access to the best of the best. And Teresio, luckily, we, not just through the sale of the instruments, as well through the repair of the instruments, the instruments that we see. You were talking about Joshua Bell. We are lucky enough to see Joshua Bell often here and to see his magnificent Stradivarius and the Huberman. Yes. So, um, yeah, I, I, I am from Spain, but my real education in instruments and music happened here in America. Really? Yeah. yeah that's a testament to us, then. Yeah. That's it's, wonderful. It's, it's the real American dream, I can have to say. So tell me about your huge inventory of instruments here. What exactly do you cover? So we th we only s we specialize in string musical instruments. So we sell violins, violas, cellos, and bows. That's that's uh, the extent of our inventory. But I'll tell you that we sell about or we have nine auctions and we average about three hundred instruments per sale. So you can imagine that actually we every year we sell. And in additionally, also we do some private sales, uh, direct sales. Mm -hmm. So every year we sell about 3,000 instruments, which is a massive amount of instruments uh, sold. That's incredible. Yeah. So walk us through this. I mean, we mere mortals don't even know about a brokerage like this. So um, let's say I have a violin and I'm, I'm willing to sell it. So I come to you, and do we start with evaluation? That's exactly correct. So. Um, you inherit, you find a violin, you come to us. Um, the first, the first step is going to do that. We have to decide who's made it. Mm -hmm. That's the that's the, that's the first step. Um, second step, not only to decide who's made it, but if all the parts in that instrument are original to this maker. Oh, okay. um, then, the, like the next step will be the state of preservation, which is very very important to the evaluation as well. Right. To see uh, what are the the cracks, how significant, how the damage has been repaired. So once we pass that, then we negotiate price, and okay. and then it gets sold. So it's step by step, we're very very diligent. One of the one of the um, risks of Teresio, which actually we turn into positive thing, is that it's exposed sale. Everything that we sell, it's online, which means that everything that we sell is vetted by hundreds of hundreds of thousands of people. That's wonderful. Which is, is the most accurate vetting system because people are bidding online. We expose everything. It doesn't happen in a room and people don't have access to it. It happens in a room that is open to the global world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's the, one of the keys of Teresio is um, that our vetting process is so accurate that our reputation precedes us. So when we sell 3,000 instruments per year, and the average per sale, it's about 85 to 90% of everything. That we sell about 85 to 90% of everything that we offer mm -hmm. uh, with the right attributions. That's the, the most, the biggest testament to our, um, yeah, to our 
accuracy. This is very interesting. So you have a bevy of specialists here yes. who actually inspect these instruments, and this is a full-time job for them. It's more than a full-time job for it. I mean, first we have to, I mean, the jobs of these people are not only to decide what they are, but mm -hmm. also to find them as well. So we, we go constantly, we have uh, experts uh, from Tricio going all over the world, literally. Um, at any given time, we are in Zurich, we are in uh, San Francisco, we are in Rochester, we're anywhere uh, doing trips, containment trips, looking for violence. People call us constantly to assess what they, what they have. Mm -hmm. So we're always on the road. So we have to decide on the spot what it is because people need to know whether it's worth selling it with us or not. Of course, yeah. So it's a, it's a very, um, yeah, it's a, it's a great process, but a lot of responsibility as well because the prices can go from a mistake on our end. Mm -hmm. It could go from suggesting a price of $1,000 to a price of a million dollars. It's not a, it's not a, so that's why we have um, a lot of responsibility to be able to offer the right opinion, the right um, assessment and that's where we're good at it. This is very interesting. So you were talking about all the parts um, specific to that violin and a crack. Um, how often does this happen? I mean, we know that wood is, is fragile, yeah. it, but in an, in, in an old instrument, which I presume are some of the best violins made, this must be a constant. It's a constant, and that, that because it's a constant, the ones that don't have cracks are the ones that the price is just go like through the roof exactly <laughs> so it, it is almost we take for granted that uh, instruments made in the 18th century are going to have cracks mm -hmm. um, it is the the opposite of what actually makes them special when they don't have the cracks but it's not just cracks it's uh, it's cracks is the, the amount of varnish that actually is left because think of an instrument having been played for 400 years mm -hmm. the sweat the air the pollution those things wear or off the varnish so all of a sudden, what, what I, I always find fascinating is that the concept of an old violin is very different. It's not actually real. Because what we think of an old violin is something that has been used and there's a lot of wear, but it's not the way, for example, let's say Stradivarius made a violin. It is, I always challenge people to think that Stradivarius, when he made a violin, it looked like a brand new violin now. Mm -hmm. That it, it would look like something that it was made yesterday. Mm -hmm. But our perception of that our perception of Stradivarius is something that looks old. Mm. But it's, it's something that we had the opportunity to auction the Lady Blunt Stradivarius, which was the most expensive violin sold at auction ever, and it looked like a brand new violin. And it was, it was very shocking and almost uh, disturbing to see it, because it looked that it's a violin that would have been yesterday in oh my gosh. anywhere else, and you wouldn't think that's a Stradivarius. Because the, the, the idea of Stradivarius that we have is something that we're the patterns of the varnish have been worn off. There is use in the violin. So, in the case of the Lady Blunt, was this just extraordinarily well taken care of? Yes, because also it had never been played. Like one almost never been played. Uh, once it was decided, once it was found, uh, when we, uh, it was it was found actually in Spain. Um, once it was found, they they, they saw that it was so well preserved that they didn't want to touch it. So it went from collector to collector to collector, and it was preserved as an example. I was mentioning that how Stradivarius made the violins. Like now, when, when, you, when you have a modern maker, every, every modern maker, many of them, are trying to emulate 
um, straight viruses, mm -hmm. but copying what we see now, the used straight viruses. Right. But it's rare that people <laughs> try to copy because that's the perception of a straight virus. But people don't copy how straight virus would have made the violin originally, yes. which is new. So it's, it's, to me, it's something very interesting always to think. This, this yeah. is fascinating. So what is it that makes the Stradivarius so incredible? What What is it that gives it that golden, mellow sound? So it's, I mean, what, what, is, what is very entertaining about Stradivarius is that there are a lot of romantic stories of why Stradivarius is the best. Mm -hmm. And you can, like, there is a, that he used blood, that he would only use uh, wood where the nightingales would sing. But there are a lot of, there are a lot of like sort of uh, really Legend. silly and, and legends mm -hmm. and, and great stories. But the truth of the matter is that it's simply experimentation. I mean, it's um, Estorius was a privileged man in terms of uh, of life. Like he lived until he was ninety years old, and he was he made violins from sixteen sixties up to seventeen thirties. I mean, through that, through all those years, he kept investigating. He kept experimenting. So when you combine talent mm -hmm. and uh, his vision mm -hmm. with uh, experimentation, mm -hmm. uh, you and one once every so often you come across a genius like Stradivarius. But it was really trial and error that he um, that he developed. or he became to, to be Stradivarius. Was there a special wood or combination of woods that he? Yes. Favored? So one of the reasons. Um, if we look at the history, I mean, when we think of violins, of course, we think of Italy. Just as, right. as we think of uh, watches, we think of Switzerland. Mm -hmm. The reason for that is because there, there are two woods used in violins. It's a spruce and maple. And those violins come from the Alps and the Po River. So it's in the northern Italy. Mm -hmm. uh, so when you have access to the best wood, um, then actually you can make better violins, obviously. Um, the other fact, actually, is that Stradivarius had access to... He lived in a town called Cremona, mm -hmm. uh, right next to Milan. And Cremona, it's a, it's a very small village, but it had the biggest concentration of talent. It is, I, I think of, um, if you come to New York City, you go to Madison Avenue, and you see that one store after the next one, you know, all these huge brands, mm -hmm. like from Prada to Gucci, whatever you, you name it. Well, Cremona was like that. It had every other, sh every front shop was a top maker from Stradivarius to Amati to Guarneri. Everybody lived in this tiny village. So the access to also this elite group of people also make the, the making of, the, of them better and more sophisticated. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. And, the, and the, other, the other part that is, I think, is worth mentioning is that when Stradivarius started making violins in the 1660s, right after that, musicians chose his violins. Right. So he has been always uh, chosen as the best sounding instrument. So when you think that your reputation is been existing at your top reputation for over 300 years, so you multiply that um, feedback for 300 years, mm -hmm. then obviously there's a translation to the price and the demand. Like if every musician for the last 300 years have chosen your violin as the best, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then that supply and demand ratio changes and your prices have to just go crazy. Of course. So what is the highest price that you have fetched here for an instrument? The Lady Blunt, uh, officially public uh, at auction, mm -hmm. uh, the Lady Blunt, and it was $16 million. $16 yeah. million. Dollars. Because even Joshua Bell did not pay that for his ex Huberman. No, and the, the Lady Plant actually uh, started at, at nine. That was the starting bid. 
and it went up to $60 million. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And and out of that price, how much does Tarisio then pocket as as Well, in that in that in that sale, it was a it was a very special sale because we um, the the owners of the of the violin um, it was the Nippon Music Foundation, and all the funds raised through the sale that were going to be donated to the tsunami relief in Japan. Um, so we also donated money to that, and so there was. Our our profit was not what it usually is because actually we tried also to to contribute to what was a great cause. Mm-hmm. So it, it doesn't represent, but our average forget about the lady blonde, but our uh, usually commissions they range from fifteen percent to twenty percent. Mm-hmm. Well, that seems normal. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah, not from the seller, only the buyer. Only the buyer. Okay, very interesting. So you know we talk about this realm of folklore and these legends. It, it also is in the names. Of some of these violins, like for instance, the Lady Blunt, exactly. and how do these names last? They, they last because actually, um, they only are associated with the Stradivarius and other top makers. Okay. They are restricted to those, um, and they are linked to those because um, either they were owned by celebrities, which is is the case, mm-hmm. or they were owned by royal families or notable families or they had some sort of a quality that made them unique. Um, so I can think, for example, the Sleeping Beauty, Stradivarius, um, that it was f- it was found in a castle, so it had been unused for hundreds of years, and, so, and they took a while to wake up, so they actually, the nickname is the Sleeping Beauty. Sleeping Beauty. Or we can think of Lady Blunt, which actually was one of the owners, was Lady Blunt in, in England. Uh-huh. So every name has a, there is a purpose for it. But I think when when you're romanticizing, when you're talking about such a high value, mm-hmm. there's a tendency to romanticize as well the instrument. So there's no better way but to give them a nickname, to also just think almost as, as, as people, in a way. And so like the red violin, the movie, exactly. which was actually the red Mendelssohn, exactly also a Stradivarius. Mm-hmm. And and this was a Stradivarius, this, the red violin? It is a Stradivarius. It is a Stradivarius, actually, it's owned by someone very close to us here in New York, um, or spends a lot of time here in New York. Mm-hmm. So yes, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's just the color. When you see that violin, it's very red. So that's why they call it the red violin. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the red, the red Stradivarius. It's the ex-Mendelssohn family, um, but it's, it's very red, so it's very distinctive. And that's how you got that nickname. This is just so interesting to me. So what what happens, though, let's say if I bring you a, a violin and I say, this is a Stradivarius that's been lost for 300 years, which it seems so many have been or, you know, kept uh, put away. Um, how are we going to really determine if it's a fake or not? That's um, a very, very good question. And we get the phone call that... Uh, every, almost every other day we get a phone call that they find a Stradivarius. Uh, which is, it, it is not, I mean, right now we have a count of how many Stradivarius are there. Um, and the way you determine is, is there are simple things um, that the, the, from the choice of the wood, from the choice, like, there's something very interesting about a violin, which is that it's handmade, to start with that. Mm-hmm. And every gesture that you do determines the violin that you're going to make. Mm-hmm. Every, there are about 50 to 70 pieces in a violin. Everyone is handmade, and there is it's an identity to every gesture. Mm-hmm. So the fr- when you look at a, a Stradivarius, the, from the varnish that is used, that is very it's almost impossible to replicate. 
um, from the varnish that is used, from the outline, the, the shape, um, to the, the shape of the F-holes, to the shape of the scroll, everything, the tool marks, there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of, sort of details left behind that you're able to identify Stravarius. And additionally, now there is technology that helps. Of course. Uh, chronology is yes. something that is being used, so we use, and it gives you, it's, it's, it's a help. It's a, it's, a, it's a tool that helps also determining the age of the wood, which obviously is something that helps identify the instrument. And in the case of the uh, dendrochronology, you, you have experts here on so site? We, we have, no, there are only a few experts on, in the world that actually have, because for, for dendrochronology, what you need is a huge database to, to be able to compare results. So what we have in-house, we have the ability to, uh, to get the, the data that they need. So then we send it off to these people with the, with the database, and then they give us the results. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So we, we're, we're able to, to get what they need. And it's something that we use constantly. Because this has to be really concise. I mean, yes. for all of this money and this kind of investment. I, I'm presuming you work with every violinist and almost every orchestra uh, in the world. We have clients from Australia to Asia to America, uh, from obviously musicians to banks. Uh, to governments, uh, to music oh schools, uh, those are a lot of our clients in those categories. Yeah. Are you? It's never it's never a boring day. I'll tell you. <laughs> I'll tell you that. It sounds twenty four seven to me. It's twenty four seven actually. And what is fascinating to me, uh, person, is that let's say we talk about one violin, the Lady Blunt. Okay. Um, the person that is want to walk in, there's going to be in any given day, there's going to be a musician that wants to play it because mm -hmm. they want to. Use the sound. They need the sound as, as their, their priority, and the way they look at it is for sound. But then an hour later, is going to be a banker that is going to come in, and he's looking for investment mm -hmm. purposes. So he doesn't care about sound; he is caring about return. Um, and then the next minute is coming a foundation that cares about um, how good it is and how much. What and it's an investment, but actually they want to loan it out to a musician. So they care how it sounds, mm -hmm. how much return. And so we start combining. So it's the same instrument. But the angles in which actually is the, the facets is almost like a diamond, that every facet is a, is a different interest for depending on the client. And that's why it is so interesting for us, is a lot of psychology, because each person has a different interest okay. in the violin. But how do you feel about that personally? I know, I, I think of uh, these rare, wonderful instruments, handcrafted, and giving so much to musicians. If, if it's put into an investment banker's hands, I mean, how do you really feel about that? I, I mean, I personally, f um, I, I'm, I'm a little divided, and I'll explain why. I mean, myself as a, as a former violinist, the violins have to be played. However, there's a historical also part of it and preservation. If we don't preserve the things that are made 300 years ago, we'll never have, we will lose heritage. You will never have access to how were these violins? We'll just see photos of them, but you will never see them if you don't preserve them. So to, I'm in favor of giving them to the musicians to be heard, to be on stage, mm -hmm. and some of them to be preserved, because we also need examples of how were they made. But if we keep using them, we'll lose them. Please go to Terizio.com for more information. With Terizio, the future of wonderful stringed instruments is in good hands, and the curtain is now down on center stage. <laughs>